Hey everybody, just a heads up that we had a few technical difficulties with the recording on this episode, so we had to rely on the Skype recording backup, uh, which is a little bit laggy and chuggy and glitchy at times, so apologies for that. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the episode with our excellent guest. I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Mike Miley, and I'm an exhibitionist who wants to hide, which explains what I'm doing here in the Great Concavity. (laughs) Excellent. Mike Miley, welcome to episode 38, man. It's great to have you on the show. We appreciate you taking the time. Of course. No, I'm very happy to be here. Cool, man. This is uh, not your first time on The Great Concavity. You were a, uh, you had a short spot on episode 17 at the Wallace Conference two years back. Uh, yes. Same episode, we talked to, to Corey Baldoff and Matt Luter. We had a, yeah. about a 10-minute chat there. That was great. Yeah. But now yeah, you get the full, we get you for the full time tonight. So yes. That's good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, so by way of introduction, Mike Miley is a film studies instructor at Loyola University in New Orleans and also teaches English and film studies at Metairie yeah. Park Country Day School in Louisiana, not Los Angeles. That's a, a conversation that, that we had earlier <laughs> before yeah. you got on the call, Matt. I was like, Mike, how do you live in New Orleans and teach for a school in Los Angeles? Is it an online school? He's like, man, there's bumper stickers about this, Jeez. Louisiana. <laughs> and everything became so much clearer to me. <laughs> Mike Miley, you are also the vice president of the International David Foster Wall Society and the associate editor of that journal that that will be coming out quite soon. Hey, guys. Yeah, that's right. It's coming down the pipe here. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Uh, You also are are quite widely published on Wallace and various other topics. You're coming up uh, with a piece in Approaches to Teaching David Foster Wallace soon. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, you've been published by the Sussex Academic Press, Critique, the Smart Set, and you've got some great posts on Wallace on your Medium page. Uh, you're also going to be chairing the roundtable of the Great Male Narcissists panel at the American Literature Association in San Francisco, which is next month in May. So that's it pretty is. exciting, too. That's cool. cool. Yeah. So quite yeah, the resume uh, goes precedes you, Mike. And perhaps most importantly, I should add, and this is how we met, uh, Mike Miley is also a Jonathan Franzen detractor. Um, so the story there is at the Paris conference when we met, you made a kind of a disparaging remark about Franzen during your, during your paper. And I was sitting behind you and at the break, I made a comment to you that I'm not the only one. That's, that's cool. And then that was kind of the start of our friendship. So thank, thanks for that, John. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, every, (laughs) like every solid friendship is formed in a (laughs) mutual (laughs) dislike of a a writer. Sure. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Um, and I didn't really know at the time that other Wallace people were not necessarily fans of Franzen. I'm sure some are, but um, that was kind of my first like aha moment of, oh, this is cool. I, ha- I have like-minded people on this. <laughs> Christ, I-, I made a disparaging Franzen m- remark earlier today. This will be my second. Oh, good. <laughs> He's a lightweight literary. Keep going. You're good. Oh, wow. Um. <laughs> I have a question and a comment, and that's how most good. Okay. That's how good. Oh, is this a conference? Yeah, that, that's how most good <laughs> conference comments. It's really more of a comment. Um, 
first question is uh, what parish is Metairie? Is that is that Jefferson Parish? What what parish are you? It in? is. It's Je- yeah. It's it's Jefferson Parish. Yeah. All right. So that that's hugely important, and I probably um, Canadian slash uh, Kiwi co-host would not have picked up on <laughs> what parish you're in. Um, second of all, my introduction to Mike Miley, I would say, came at the first uh, David Foster Wallace conference in Illinois, where he presented a version of a paper that later appeared in the Smart Set, and we will link to this in the show notes of the episode, but if you have not read it, you must, and it's about, um, it's a, I don't know what it's about, it's about marginalia, it's about um, Wallace's archive, and, and something else, Mike, what, what, what am I missing, what that piece is really about? <laughs> Oh, I mean, well, it's it's just about me. I mean, that's that's I that think works. like that, that and works. that's part of where the I mean, it's it's mainly yeah, it's it's purportedly about Wallace's marginalia, but I think the the journey that it that it takes and that I realized that I was on, uh, I thought I was on some sort of a a quest to get closer to uh, my literary idol, but what I really wound up doing, I realized, was kind of staring my own fandom in the face and not entirely liking what I saw. Um, <laughs> so, or at least that's my read on it. I, I think that's fair. And I, I was just going to say, um, if, if, if people listening to this podcast have not read that, we will make sure that they will by putting it out there on our Twitter and in the show notes. Definitely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll we'll link to all of your your Wallace publications in the show notes. Uh, caught in the bandana trap uh, at all as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Mike, I've had the privilege of seeing you speak at quite a few conferences now. Um, usually, your your presentations that I've seen have revolved around Wallace and film. Um, you talked about some filmography stuff. Um, you talked about uh, the work of Paul Thomas Anderson at one of the conferences, and specifically uh, Magnolia. And yeah. uh, so, so film is is a huge part of your background. Um, walk us through a little bit of of your background on Wallace and and this film study stuff that that you've managed to to discuss with Wallace in such such cool ways. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I mean, they're I guess they're sort of separate tracks that wind up converging when I when I when I finally grew up um, and. <laughs> It, uh, I mean, film's been a, a major part of my my life and my worldview from you know from a very early age, and I had kind of gone through high school wanting to be uh, an actor. I had done like speech and debate in high school, you know, that was I was part of that whole that whole crowd. Uh, but then around the time I got to be a, a junior or senior, and they let you start like coaching the freshmen on the squad. I found that. I actually enjoyed doing that a lot more than I liked doing the performances myself. And so, uh, and around that time, I also got like a a home video camera for Christmas or a birthday or something like that. And so I had started making uh, short films and things like this. And this was during the sort of mid to late nineties with the whole DIY indie film, sort of Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Coen brothers at all kind of boom. And so I sort of went to college figuring that I was going to become a filmmaker and, you know, went to graduate school at the American Film Institute and got uh, an MFA in film directing and, you know, tried to do the the whole writer-director thing in Los Angeles for a few years. And, you know, that sort of, I think in hindsight now, so jumping jumping closer to, to now, I think what I realized is a lot of the, the film work that I was doing 
was probably a lot more like film criticism than it was actual filmmaking. I, the analytical part of, of my head couldn't really get turned off long enough to make the work uh, come alive the way that it needed to in order to be entirely successful at, at what I was trying to do. And so I think that, you know, now I, I see that the, the writing that I do about film and about literature is really the kind of where all that creativity was, was trying to go in the first place. Uh, and so, and I think to tie it to Wallace, I, in some ways, I think this is, I mean, this is part of his, not to say that we're on the, you know, an equal track or, or anything like that, but part of his sort of jump between like philosophy and fiction, right? Where the, you know, in some particularly the early fiction, uh, some of it is sort of like uh, literary criticism, right? Sort of unpacking yeah. uh, writers who he either admired or uh, took issue with uh, as trying to sort of carve out his own aesthetic. Um, and so, uh, so around during that time, uh, you know, even though I was really heavily into film, I was also a, a pretty big reader all the while. And from, I guess, toward the end of high school and into college, Wallace kind of became a, a big part of that. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of, a lot of the, the cool lit kids carrying infinite jest around or talking <laughs> about, uh, in, in like 97 and 98. And I, I actually got into Wallace though, from the, the, this is going to sound really weird, but I think the first thing I read beginning to end was uh, the, Dictionary, uh, tense present, uh, authority in American usage. Uh-huh. It's a great. Piece. Was the first. Oh. Read. Yeah, real good. Strangely, was like, oh man, this is the guy everybody's been talking about. Hell yeah! <laughs> right? um, so, and then I think like in that they did that New Yorker in the summer of '99, the you know writers under under forty thing that had the yeah. asset from brief interviews in it. I remember reading that, and so that's when he kind of stopped being like a a name to me versus someone that I thought, okay, I'm, now I'm reading this guy and I, I'm, I'm really digging it. And so that, um, and so I wound up actually, uh, the, the first crack I took at Infinite Jest was on, strangely enough, on my, on my honeymoon. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I brought that and my wife brought Harry Potter four. <laughs> and so that was our, uh, sort of our, our, cool. our, 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 our reading journeys. <laughs> um, I brought in Blood and, Meridian and on my honeymoon. Was uh, that I started reading Infinite Jest uh, in Arizona, uh, so that was oh, yeah, that cool too. Cool yeah. Oh, this is a good thread. What did you ring? Blood Meridian. Yeah, I was reading Blood oh, Meridian shit. at the time. That's I not like a- the week we got married. <laughs> it's not a beach read, my friend. No, what? I know. I'm avoiding. <laughs> what were we so afraid of? <laughs> oh my god! I you know what I brought? This is super embarrassing, but I brought Angels and Demons. Oh, Ooh, Dan, okay. uh, and Dan, Dan Brown. It was terrible. It was terrible. But I thought, I was like, oh, I wanted a beach read. And so I didn't take Infinite Jest or Blood Meridian to the, to the beach. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, Mike, I, I want to go back to the uh, American Film Institute. That's in L.A., right? Is that... It is. Yeah. Yeah. So we lived out there for like 12 years. Wow. So, um, but you're originally from New Orleans or... I'm originally from Lafayette, Louisiana, oh, okay. so it's about two hours west of of New Orleans, uh, oh. the the hub city, the heart of, the heart of Acadiana. Oh Cajun yeah, country. I, I remember going to the mall there in Lafayette. It's crazy. Oh, the mall of Acadiana, or yeah. it has the mall of Louisiana, I think. No, or 
I'm, somebody's going to get really angry at me. It, sorry, it, it used to be the Acadiana Mall. Now it's the Mall of Acadiana. Whatever it was in wow. 1988, that's when I went there. Um, the Acadiana Mall, yeah. 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 Anyway, Does it have roller coasters? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Okay. It's not like a super mall like no, that? No, 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 no. Oh, no, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's super. Um, <laughs> anyways, but, uh, I didn't want to go off on that. What I wanted to ask you was, um, <laughs> like, what led you out there? And, and it really going back to what you were saying about being in high school – and the other day, I'm going to try to tie this together with a tweet that you posted about your Filmstruck Four, and really what oh, was Lord. like, really what was like your kind of like guiding lights in the film world. Like, what kind of a film nerd were you? <laughs> oh, I mean, well, I mean, even at AFI, like I, I kind of got tagged as like the film snob because um, I was like wow. at that point was just head over heels for like the French new wave and, um, <laughs> and stuff like that. But, um, the, I mean, in high school, it was very, I mean, I, I, I was either fortunate or cursed enough to, uh, Pulp Fiction came out my freshman year of, of high school and, you know, as did clerks and <laughs> El Mocachi and, you know, films like that. Um, and I was already sort of a heavy subscriber to like Entertainment Weekly and, and Premiere uh, when, it, when it still existed and things like that. And so in high school, it was a lot of that sort of new indie stuff like Soderbergh or Jarmusch, uh, the Coens, um, Ben, uh, and, and, and David Lynch as well. And so my and, – and as I started reading about all of these people, a lot of them – went to film schools, whether that was sort of the, the Scorsese, Spike Lee, Jim Jarmusch, NYU crowd, or the Spielberg, Lucas, kind of USC, UCLA world. But then there were the filmmakers like Lynch and Terrence Malick, uh, and even more, um, and even other filmmakers like uh, John Dahl or um, Darren Aronofsky, uh, who was getting start was making films when I was in college that I was really, really into. And they, they all went to the American film Institute. And the more I looked at their, uh, that school's curriculum, um, I was, I thought, no, okay, this is actually the place that I would like to go. And, um, you know, was fortunate enough to, to get to go. I, I came off the wait list on the first day. Uh, they called and said, somebody just said, they're not coming. Can you be here in an hour? Um, <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I had one shoe on and I was putting the other shoe on and I had a bagel in my other hand and was like, well, um, let me finish, let me finish breakfast and getting dressed and let me quit my unpaid internship. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be there a little bit. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's how it started. And so, so what Very is cool. your, what is your like top four in your pantheon? Uh, what of filmmakers of directors uh, of films of films oh films oh god i mean well today like right now um uh you know bertolucci's the conformist uh sunset boulevard uh vertigo and uh i i guess a david lynch film and today i will say that that david lynch film is blue velvet, <laughs> blue velvet. <laughs> nice what what let's let's slow down on David Lynch a little bit because obviously there's okay, some sure. there's some overlap <laughs> with Wallace there right and quite yes. so um, yes quite a bit I mean and Wallace would probably put Blue Velvet up there although he did write about Lost Highway in that profile um, mm -hmm. I mean I mean how do you see Lynch's trajectory you've followed him obviously now like 
20 plus years. Like, how do you see him as a filmmaker? How do you rate his recent stuff, et cetera, et cetera? Just give us your assessment. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, apart from you know, Twin Peaks, The Return, and then Inland Empire, I haven't really followed his work in between the two as much. I mean, I've, I've listened to some of his Crazy albums. Crazy Clown Time. <laughs> I, I own Crazy Clown Time. I own The Big Dream, uh, you know, and, and they're fine. I haven't really watched the music videos that he's done for them or anything like that. But, I mean, I mean Inland Empire, I, I find to be a profoundly moving and experience that almost made me cry in the theater at the end. Yeah, that, I really um, like that movie. That looking at the television set and, um, you know, and then starts to weep. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm sort of the way that he manages to, to talk about art's ability to people and to have profound effects on, on people's lives. And he can put that up on the screen in a way that, might not necessarily make any sense to the person watching it, but you're moved nonetheless. And I'm I'm always sort of in awe of his ability to make you feel something very strongly, even though you don't understand it. And I mean, that's essentially what our emotional experience on a day to day level is, right? We we feel very strongly, and we have no ability to articulate them or to process them really uh, at first, right? We're just overcome with emotion. Uh, and Twin Peaks: The Return, I. Um, I thoroughly loved and was frustrated by and, you know, can't wait to watch again. And I went back and rewatched the, the first, the original series and Firewalk with me. And then you're <laughs> getting destroyed again by Firewalk with me. I realized I, I, I had to walk away for a little while because I, Firewalk with me is not something from which one quickly recovers. Um, yeah, so, it's, it's pretty visceral. Oh, but it's so pain. I've been teaching high school for so long. I thought, you know, like this isn't like about high school or about a high school girl. Like this movie is high school. Like this is just the emotional experience <laughs> of being in high school. Um, you know, and I, I don't know how to articulate that really or defend it. I'm, I'm but I, I stand by it. Like that. That's just the same way that like Wild at Heart is not like about rock and roll, but it just it is rock. It is rock and roll. You know, to its core. Um, I, I like that that his work's ability to just be the thing it is, or, or it is what it's about, um, even while it's nominally trying to be about it. It just it is embodying it at the same time. It's funny when you were just saying that the um, the Skype was kind of breaking up, and it sounded like you said Garmon Bozia. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We're in the Black Lodge now, guys. I didn't catch all of that, but uh, someone is coming for me in the window, so I'm going to have to <laughs> take a break. I know that. But the, hey, it's cool because that gum you like is going to come back in style. It's going to be. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because you saw Inland Empire in the theater, and like I saw that movie first Twice. At, at home, yeah. and I, I found it to be almost uh, incoherent and incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to describe Lynch's work, I think. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, uh, I loved his Donnie Darko. But in a good way. Donnie Darko, that was great that he did, you know. That was... What? That was Donnie Darko? That, that was a joke. That was oh, a joke. Okay. God. <laughs> I was like, there's an alternate Donnie oh Darko by David Lynch. Oh I've not God. heard of this, you man. Guys, you guys. All right. It? Let's just take a deep breath. Keep, keep going. We're good. We're good. Um, Is that like David Lynch light? No, no, no. It, it is. It is. But, um, For 13-year-olds? 
Um, I, I also want to ask Mike, and I'm, we're going to jump around a lot here because th there's a lot to talk about with Mike, and I feel like we have um, you know, a limited amount of time. We could easily do a five-hour podcast with just Mike. Um, Mike on film and Wallace. But I, and game shows and game shows. That's but what I was think it's for everyone. <laughs> well, well, that's what I was transitioning into is the um, the game show. So, can you tell us a little bit yeah. just about like your interest in that to begin with, and then we'll get into some specifics. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the interest is actually it comes entirely from this paper I did for the Wallace Conference in in 2015. I, I mean, I, I've always really liked game shows uh, or as a kid. Uh, in the in the summers, I, I'm I'm an only child, and so in the summers, I would watch a lot of game shows during the day. Mm -hmm. The USA Network would just have like a you know a block of you know uh, bumper stumpers and Wipeout and Tic Tac Doe and everything. Price like, is right. The Price is right. Well, yeah, you catch the Price is right like in its in its live you know or in its you know yeah. new would run at like 10 a.m. but mm -hmm. then you just coast on through the day until you you, you know I, <laughs> bowed out, I bowed out at the wheel because I, I just I was too cool for the wheel uh, but um, but then like my and then my all-time favorite is, is pressure luck uh, you know as a, oh. as a kid the wham my big, jam big bucks um, yeah big bucks no whammies <sighs> big money and stop <laughs> so, yeah and so like so I've always liked them but the the thing that I wound up doing was um, I was really uh, I'm also you know Magnolia is one of the the big movies in my life um, and I've always wanted to write something about it and then I sort of realized that uh, both Magnolia and or both Anderson and Wallace made these uh, these works about game shows that also involve families um, mm -hmm. and then they're one of their bigger artistic forebears, J.D. Salinger, also does the same thing. And so I started wondering, okay, well, what's up with this? This is, um, you know, this is th three people who would seem to be the three artists least interested in in the possibilities of the game show for communicating human emotion and, and connection. And so I, I just started looking at that and the the, the draft of the paper that I presented at the Wallace conference, like the original draft was like 20,000 words long. And <laughs> I felt like I still had more to say. And then I thought, well, if I can find a few other works that use game shows, I've got material for a book. And so I kind of backed into it or, or, or fell into it or whatever you want to call it. And so now I, I have a a September 1st uh, manuscript deadline for a, a book-length um, study of how writers and filmmakers use the game show as a metaphor to talk about other things like uh, self, love, family, and uh, state power. State power, wow. Yeah, so that's like where the Hunger Games and the Running Man, oh, yeah. that comes in. Um, so that's the chapter I'm working on right now. And so they... Um, it, it, it's sort of like looking at where the the media and the state converge and uh, use it uh, as use the media to uh, I guess um, enact what the one of the only things the state's allowed to do legally uh, kill people right um, so uh, so I'm look I'm looking into that right now and that's been that's been kind of fun to um, to watch those those movies with that looking at them again in that with that lens uh, has been really fun 
Cool. Let, let me ask you about Magnolia because that that's a yeah. movie that's a movie I just uh, you know unironically love, and yeah. and I feel like maybe there's a lot of like backlash and hate. It came out like 18 years ago. How is it aged? Like 98 or 99? 2000. 2000. No, two, 2000. 99, 2000. Yeah, it came out in 99. Yeah, it was like right when I graduated. It came out like then. December of 99. I remember seeing it like January yeah. 2000, but. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, how, how, <laughs> is it, how is it aged? I mean, w- critically, I, I don't just mean like as a film, but like what is the reception yeah. of it now in terms of, you know, its importance? Is it is it important? I don't know. I mean, I like it. Well, I mean, and I'm, I, I, may not right, I, might, I might not be the right person to ask because I will, you know, like I'll, you know, call upon people's seconds, you know, to see who, who won't disparage that movie. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in love with it from day one and, you know, and even though I've seen it a, a bunch of times and have read a lot of uh, negative criticism of it, I, it hasn't deterred me at all from just, I mean, it was just a movie that hit me at the right moment. Like I saw it when I needed to see it. And um, I don't think I've ever really moved beyond that state of when I, those months when I, when I saw it, I mean, I was so obsessed with it. I saw it uh, once a week for like a month, just wow. taking different people to go see it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, y'all have to see this movie. Um, but I think, um, you know, like, uh, I, as with most of Anderson's work, uh, the, its reputation do- has improved over time. I think it still does have its detractors. I mean, Anderson included. Including and, Wallace. <laughs> yeah, and Wallace. Yeah. And we can talk about that. I've got my own little, yeah. my own little theory about that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he um, I mean, Anderson talks about, uh, I mean, I think his, his career, you know, is, is really interesting in that he sort of looks at Punch Drunk Love as the first movie that felt distinctly like his, where he felt like he knew what he was doing, uh, which I find interesting because all the other work, I mean, all of the work is so incredibly personal, but uh, I think also though, at, from Punch Drunk Love onward, he's wearing his influences less on his sleeve and is sort of cultivating maybe his own aesthetic rather than perhaps bathing in that sort of 90s indie auteurist kind of thing where people are just riffing on Scorsese and Altman and, you know, and things like that. But to, to avoid making this whole thing where we just sort of talk about every, every film, every artist other than Wallace, I'll bring it back to, to Wallace. But... <laughs> no, it's fine, man. I'm into this. Uh, yeah. I mean, but like my theory about like, you know, Wallace saying that like Magnolia is like this, I think in a letter to Don DeLillo, he says something like, you know, if you see the word Magnolia on a marquee, you need to run quickly in the other direction <laughs> because it's like, you know, grass and, yeah, you know, too heavy handed. Like, yeah. He sort of dismisses it as like, oh, this is just like some sort of big budget film student kind yeah. of work. Um, but that phrase but, Boogie Nights, right, as being the kind of work that he yeah, wanted fan, to do. Yeah, Boogie Nights. And, and so and here's, like, the interesting thing, right? Because, you know, the time that he praises Boogie Nights, I guess he's probably working on Sir John Feelgood, right? So he's getting in perhaps – is is in David in Dave Herring's book, does he suggest that maybe Boogie Nights even scares him off the, the, ang- the porn angle of Sir John Feelgood because he feels like Anderson nailed it so well or mm. – I just making that up. Um. <laughs> I think there's something like that in there, but I mean, I, I have my own theory is that he sort of saw the emptiness of it and that there's not a lot of depth to it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually don't. We, we to Magnolia. I mean, from Boogie Nights, I just don't, I think him seeing Boogie Nights 
what he did with the porn essay in 99, 2000, um, what Wallace did, I find it entertaining, but not super deep. You know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of like too easy a target argument. Yeah. It's like, you know, he worked on this long manuscript for a long time and wanted to do something with porn. Sir John Feelgood became something I think more personal to him, which was this thing about boredom and taxes and not about just the porn scene. I think he tried to do something interesting with that and kind of failed. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then a lot of it gets poured into, uh, I guess, brief interviews with hideous men. Yeah. Um, to, to my mind, which is also maybe where the Magnolia um, resistance comes from is, I mean, Frank T.J. Mackey, uh, Tom Cruise's character in Magnolia mm-hmm. is one of those hideous men, totally. right? Totally. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Magnolia um, on the whole is, I mean, I don't know if you can really ask for a more a, a more cinematic equivalent of the way that Infinite Jest is structured uh, uh-huh. and the, the sorts of things that it does uh, and its kind of symbolic structure or, or the way that it like deals with things thematically and symbolically. And throughout Wallace's career, there is this um, trend where he disses people whose work bears too much similarity to his own and and really works to distance himself from uh, that work, uh, whether that is you know, even denying like reading The Crime of Lot 49 yeah. very early in his career <laughs> to trashing John Barth while continuing to emulate him throughout his career as Mary Holland has really effectively argued, I think. Uh, I mean, we, we see it all over the place. Um, you know, dissing Brett Easton Ellis while also... Uh, is sort of admiring and imitating some of his stuff, um, you know. So I think there's a, I think there maybe is something there throughout the the career to like sort of throw people off the off the scent, right? Like the of his, of the people who are like him, and and like his he uses interviews very uh, very adeptly to sort of manage or stage manage how people are going to read him and, and write about him. And I mean, we see it still happening now. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's a very clever, uh, thing of media manipulation in some ways that, uh, that I feel like at least to me, the one that sticks out to me is the, not a giveaway per se, but like that sticks out to me is, as a really good example of that is his, uh, you know, albeit private dismissals of Magnolia. That's my hot take. <laughs> cool. But that also just might be me trying to reconcile two things I really love and like oh, my like my two friends are fighting, you know, and I'm like, guys, guys, don't you see you're really friends? Um, you know, that may be what some of it is. No, I think that's interesting because there's a lot of that with Wallace and even with um, you know, Franzen or like you said, with Brett Easton Ellis, um or, or with Updike, I would say with Updike where I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of people, you know, we're going to be talking about Updike more in the next month, but I think there's a lot of people yeah. as readers who can appreciate both or enjoy both. Um, but yet as artists, those two were very much at heads with each other. Um, and I, I find that somewhat more interesting when they're not, you know, they, they don't really directly compete um, whereas like Wallace and Brett Easton Ellis were often lumped together in the same kind of group, um, because they were yeah. about the same age, same age. Um, and, right. and I mean, I, I don't know that Wallace was ever really compared to a filmmaker in his lifetime, 
or really writers are really even lumped considered. I mean, film is such a different beast and such a different, such a different audience. You know, so many more people now, especially it feels like more people watch movies than read. Definitely. Um, sure. But to compare the two, I mean, as artists, I, I, I think it's valuable from an, you know, definitely from an academic point of view, but I wonder how much value you find um, when you look at Wallace, at, like you said, the way that he structures his books or structured them um, or the way that he represented characters. I mean, you've, you've studied that a lot in film. Like, tell us a little bit about how film is different than books in the way that and, and structuring those kind of narratives. Yeah. Um, I mean, the old adage, I guess, is that the structure of a feature film is really more like the structure of a short story. Um, and that that's usually why adaptations of short stories fare better as feature films than, uh, than adaptations of novels do. Uh, I mean, obviously that's not, um, you know, a, a true in all cases. Um, and, uh, but I guess, but then again, you know, really like, and, and I'm sure someone has written at far greater length and, and with more insight in this, into this than, than I have with what I'm about to say to some degree, the, the arrival of cinema changes how some novels are written, you know, and how they're, they're structured and things like that. And to some degree, like, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm positive someone has written about this and I just don't, I'm not remembering their name at some point at this point, but I mean, Infinite Jest is basically, you can look at its structure. We can talk about Sierpinski gaskets all we want, but its structure is also like a television show, um, you know, with these abrupt cutaways to, different different storylines and tracking characters i mean the, the book itself even has a big essay on hill street blues right and uh -huh. on the you know playing it off other types of television shows so um yeah i mean we can talk about them as uh, tell like uh i guess sort of cinematic language and um literary language as, as being different and of course they are but i think it's it, on some some of them though bear more resemblances to each other than than not right and you know certainly uh, and usually, I guess, the comparisons get thrown more in the direction of, yeah, no one's necessarily comparing Wallace to filmmakers, but people might be throwing the, the Wallace comparison at filmmakers, right? Or throwing the novelistic adjective at a film or a television show. I mean, right, everyone, the 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 tired take on The Wire, right? And which, uh, I guess, you know, Wallace himself even said in private to, uh, to Kathleen Fitzpatrick, right? Like, yep. the, the Wire is the novel of the 21st century or what, what the novel is doing or something like that. Um, right. But, but I think that's even, even the case um, in something like, uh, you know, Magnolia unfolds both cinematically and novelistically, you know, I, like I think that these, uh, these boundaries um, and, and how they, how these things tell their stories are a lot more porous because they're all, it's all narrative you know, at a, at a, at the end of the day, they're, they're all narrative and they're all more alike than they are different. Um, and, and maybe that's just my own no, perspective. I, what you were saying, though, about um, students and uh, narrative, I, I think is a good point. And it leads me to another line of questioning that I wanted to get to, which is about you've obviously um, taught a lot of you know literature and film. Like, can you tell us a little bit about teaching um, Wallace's work and like what you think works best in that setting? Yeah, give oh, us a preview yeah. of your upcoming chapter, Mike. <laughs> <And> approaches to <laughs> well, teaching David Foster Wallace. 
Yeah, I mean, that. well, that chapter is an, an interesting thing because it's like a combination of stuff I've actually done and then stuff that I realize in hindsight would have worked better. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, like, it's, it's both like, uh, it's both past and future tense um, <laughs> with stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, like I've, I've been really lucky to be, to have worked at schools that are very much like, uh, don't convince us why you should do something, just do it and tell us how it went. Um, and, and I think that is certainly the kind of environment that I, I mean, I, I do a lot more things kind of intuitively and, you know, am sort of convinced that it'll work, but don't know why until I do it and sort of like to find my way through it. So, I mean, like it, it's been all over the place where in the school I work at in California, I was actually able to, to teach infinite jest twice, uh, as like the high schoolers, right? Yeah, to high school seniors. Yeah, it, it is the, the dumbest and the most amazing thing <laughs> I've ever done. Um, and they were really great experiences both times um, that were, you know, just some of my most cherished uh, things that I've done as a teacher. Uh, you know, I've, I've made regular use of teaching the commencement address, uh, but and teaching things like my appearance and uh, good old neon. Uh, I like to use the uh, good people, that, that section from the yep, pale yep. thing. Views Consider the Lobster and the View from Mrs. Thompson's in AP English Language, uh, stuff like that. And um, and so I kind of bounce around with with different things like that throughout. But I think, it, in, I guess this is the thing that I, I, you know, it sounds crazy to be, I mean, it's more common now to throw Wallace at high school students. But I guess the, the thing that I feel like with, particularly with Infinite Jest, with uh, teaching that, that to high school students is it's, it is very challenging for them to say the least, but it's also the best time for someone to hear what that book has to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, for the, the, I, I teach it, I've taught at independent schools that are, you know, college prep institutions. They're like the academic version of ETA, right? <laughs> yeah, and, all right. <laughs> uh, like where, where they're all concerned about getting to the show, my students are very concerned about like what school they're going to. Like Ivy right? League, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean like whether, whether that's, you know, or like it's it's not about like am I going to college so much as, you know, what college am I going to get into and is it going to be one of these, um, you know, and, and yeah. I think a lot of the, like that Lamont Chu conversation just mm-hmm. it doesn't With Lyle. Take, a very big leap. Yeah, it doesn't make a very big leap for them to see the the how they're living in that situation. Um, and they are as invested in it and disgusted with it as Hal is, you know. And so that's that's been a, a very interesting um, conversation to have with with young people who, like everyone who comes to Wallace, uh, wind up feeling like, oh, wow, this person's writing exactly what I'm thinking in my head, but I just wasn't able to say it myself. And here it is on paper, you know, and yeah. so they um, they they identify they ID really hard. Um, <laughs> Super hard IDing. Yeah. And, and, I mean, it's like been really fun. That's been kind of the fun thing to do. You know, and so, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work like uh, but um, but the, the times that I've done material for Infinite Jest, it has um, it's worked surprisingly well, um, you know, even um, even though, you know, some, you have to do some sort of upfront, you know, scaffolding or, um, or explaining kind of what's going on. Um, yeah. but you know, you, you have to do less of it than you might think. Yeah. And did your students read the entire book? 
They did. Yeah. They did. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. They cool, did cool. that. We read that. That was, I mean, it, it called it a class and they got academic credit for it, but it was basically a book club. Right. right. <laughs> um, they were all second semester seniors. You know, they were, uh, they just want, and, and so it like was a kind of thing where the class sort of selected itself. And wow. so in that way, it, it was geared to succeed because they, they knew what they were getting into. Right. Um, and uh, and they were down. A couple of them finished early, you know, finished ahead of schedule and were, you know, were super proud of themselves. And, uh, and I mean, and it, I mean, it was just one of the more unique things that I, I've done because we were in Los Angeles at the time and we had the advantage of, um, you know, Bonnie Nadell, you know, lives and works in Los Angeles. And she came and talked to both my classes both times. Did and, she really? Yeah. Wow, cool. These are the Pale King, uh, you know, bef- like before it came out, I think, or like before the, it was, no, the the paper, it was like before the paperback had come out. So they got like new paperbacks of the pale King before they hit the street. Uh, You know, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick talked to a class one year before she, before she left LA and we got, uh, we got to meet Michael Silverblatt, you know, I mean like, so it was just those like one of those really cool things where the, what we were doing and where we were doing it allowed us to, basically make that class our lives where apparently all of the other students in their grade were like, can y'all shut up about <laughs> we don't care? Um, you know, but then that was like their, there's a whole lot worse things that could make them like the, have some sort of secret from their peers, you know, on a, on a high school campus. <laughs> they could be doing something a lot more destructive. Um, <laughs> sure. A lot worse ways to have too much fun. Right. Yeah. They're, it depends how much they're emulating, like Mike Pemulus's lifestyle and habits, could be worse. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I am, uh, I am purposefully ignorant of a lot of that stuff. Well, <laughs> let, let me ask you, Mike, because I'm interested in that and that. What uh, you know, the kids who are kind of not self-selecting, but just general high school students these days. Like, what kind of writers do they know? coming into it. I mean, I think you're setting a lot of these kids up so that they get to college and they're already talking about David Foster Wallace and that's, that's cool. But like when they come into the class, like what do they know? Do they know Brett Easton Ellis? Do they know Tony Morrison? Do they know stuff that's just been assigned? Like what, what are the, what are these kids talking about? Uh, I mean, no, they do no high school kids. Well, I I have a student right now who's reading American (laughs) Um, Classroom. And that's kind of fun to like geek out with on the on the download be like hey man so what have you gotten to the yet? um if you're named michael what's up uh but the um but yeah i mean i think they, they know morrison i mean i think the um the the bluest eye and is uh, is firmly in our curriculum and then uh a lot of the american lit teachers alternate uh among like Sula um, and Son of Solomon. And uh, on Tuesday, I start teaching jazz for the first time. I'm very nice. excited about that. Uh, so they know, you know, they know Morrison, um, you know, and it's, um, but I mean, I think the, maybe some of the, I don't know if it's that much of a difference in like the way reading culture for teenagers has changed so much where the the rise of YA fiction, right. you know, in like, they they all know John Green, you know. They all know yeah. the Hunger Games um, uh-huh. or the Divergent series and and things like that. And you know, I've got some, but like I've got you know, I have some ninth graders right now who are you know reading. You know, the the this big book, um, uh, the big book right now for a lot of the um, uh, 
the high school girls is uh, is the girls uh, by Emma Klein. Oh yeah, they are passing that book around to each wow. other, and it's super cool. Uh, I mean, and because I see them carrying it around, I mean they 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 look like they're you know I mean the book's about like a little cult, right? I mean it looks like so they've all got the same book going around, right? It's like oh hey, what's up? <laughs> I, know what, I know what that means. Um, you know, so it's. You know, I, I it's it's always surprising, like what what people are reading, and um, you know, there's there's like dudes reading Vonnegut, you know, um, and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I just feel like you know, some so of those groups are like surprises alongside the same, like just you know, uh, people reading, you know, like looking at memes, you know, like it. Um, there's a there's a spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's what I'm interested in is like the kids who are smart, but they're not necessarily going to be English majors, you know, like, mm-hmm. do they mm-hmm. know, you know, because Wallace was like, not only a fiction writer, but kind of a journalist and a critic. And like, wh- you like, do they read journalism? Like what, what kind of, like, would they know a journalist's name going into class like that, that kind of stuff, I think. Um, it's super interesting by the time you get to college, you know, like what do people follow? Do they yeah. read the New Yorker? Or? Uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I mean, some, some probably do, um, you know, and some might know, um, you know, certainly some sports journalists, um, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I don't know and I don't have a, um, I, I don't necessarily have like a super rosy answer, but I also don't want to sound like some sort of like kids these days, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm to, I'm trying to tie it back to that question yeah. about like how you said earlier about, you know, when you were coming of age and getting into film and you were into like, you know, you were watching Steven Soderbergh and Jim Jarmusch and, and David Lynch was coming up and like, you know, this is sort of the literary equivalent of that same, the flip side of that coin is like what, you know, what well, is oh, ha- yeah, on I mean, happening was, on the ground of that? I didn't have a whole lot of friends, you know, <laughs> and I was, I was an only child. I mean, yeah. you got to understand the hours that I was logging doing all of this stuff were largely spent alone, right. you know, or, or with dad who would be my like, like the dude who was getting me into R-rated movies, you know, <laughs> that's, um, you know, so I mean, like, I think there, there's a big difference uh, in that uh, too, where it's it's not so much that like, I'm not sort of say sort of trying to say that like if I had been popular, you know, this would have worked out differently or anything like that. But I mean, it was sort of like a, a, it's a mutual benefit to like you know the things that I liked to do usually involved me being by myself, and you know I had a lot of time to do that. Um, so so yeah, I mean I I I, I think that uh, one of the very interesting things of becoming a teacher, uh, and and Dave, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, is how quickly you realize that um, how your experience as a teenager as universal and, you know, and vital as you thought it was, you find out that not the universal vital experience, right? And that, <laughs> like, as you get older. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, yeah. you get older in the classroom oh, and you, suddenly, you, you realize that like, if every teenager was like you, when you were a teenager, then everyone would be an English teacher, right? Like, you know, I mean, it's, um, I, I think that you, you kind of find out that, you know, what you, I mean, again, it's like kind of getting back to the, the commencement address, right? Like you kind of realize that what you thought of as like what, what you realize that your default setting was a default setting and that, you know, your experience does not stand in for, for every person's experience as, you know, 
as universal as you know you know media might lead you to believe that your that, you, that your coming of age experience was right uh, one person has done um, so yeah I, I don't know if that that really gives you much of what you were what you were wondering but. No, I mean, I just find it, I find it interesting. I mean, obviously I have a vested interest in, um, you know, seeing if Wallace is read, um, you know, by younger generations and, you know, him <laughs> being taught in high school is a big part of that and being yeah. taught in, you know, intro lit stuff in college is a big part of that. And also just the sort of self-selecting group that, is going to read weird stuff that's not assigned to them. You know, I think Toni Morrison is yeah. going to be assigned to these kids for a long time. And, um, you know, saying you read that is different than like you sought out and bought like a used book of, you know, whoever, Jonathan Franzen or Bologna or whoever you're sort of, that sort of self-selecting yeah. nerds is, I hope will always <laughs> exist. Because that, that was definitely well, me. I, I will say to that long effect, may they live. I have, I have had students who after we, wind up doing something by Wallace, wind up either asking for more or going to find more on their own. Um, And, you know, we'll share it with their friends and stuff like that. And so if there's one student like that out of 50, you know, a year, job well done, you know, you know, to a certain degree, like, you know, Wallace is, um, can be a, a gateway writer, you know, to, for people to, realize that there's something else out there uh, in the in the reading life that isn't um, just the, st- the canonical stuff that's been assigned to them, right? That fiction has, yeah. has up to different stuff from what they've been, what their teachers have been, have been telling them. And um, I mean, I, I know that's certainly like discovering the postmodernist was certainly that kind of a thing yeah. for me, you know, yes. or, or like, I mean, it's like the equivalent of like finding Nirvana, the the band, right? Like, <laughs> not the Buddhist concept, am I right, guys? Um, but like the, you know, it's the same thing, right? You realize, oh man, there's this whole other world out there that doesn't sound like Phil Collins or the Police, what? You know, or you know, or Color Me Bad or something like that, right? Oh. There's this other music out there Shit. that um, that when you're in middle school, like you know, clicks with you, and yeah. and then that leads you on a whole path. Um, and so, you know, I think, I mean, I'm sure like, you know, Tony McMahon, uh, argues this stuff incredibly well, right. The way that sort of the Wallace's aesthetic as both a writer and kind of a public figure, um, works in a similar way that, um, that grunge, grunge you know, yeah. does, right. Um, and I, and I think he's, I mean, they have the coincidence of occurring roughly at the same time in, in history, but, yeah. um, I mean, he's, there's, a, there's a point to that in that these, those, whether that's with, um, with Nirvana or Wallace, if they're appearing in a magazine or in an interview, they are dropping the names or wearing the T-shirt of another band, another writer, right? Somebody else, people who are new to the, this whole scene, they basically get a primer from that person on what else to go find, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. the hunger and then tell people there's more to eat, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing that, like, I think is, is wonderful, right? They're, like, artists and and curators. Um, and, and that's the thing that always um, has appealed to me about studying people is, you know, you're finding sort of, you're basically tracing the, the flow chart of where they came from and who those people came from and who comes after all these people and what the offshoots are and stuff like that. And um, 
I, I find that just endlessly fascinating because then suddenly every every book you read, every movie you see, there's like three or four more things that you have to go read and see. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you're not crossing anything off your list. You're you're only adding to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? That's a reason to be alive. You know, it's like the list gets bigger. Um, and that is a reason to be alive. That's good. I mean, I'm definitely that way with books. Uh, obviously, as everyone knows, I'm not that way with music. I'm still stuck on the on the Phil Collins, and um, I'm totally proud <laughs> of it. Totally proud of it. But um, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm getting there with music. I'm I'm hitting, I guess, what they call taste freeze, um, where where <laughs> I, I I don't have the time. I can't keep up anymore, and yeah. so now it's just. You know, I'm just getting every new of Montreal or, you know, guided by voice <laughs> or cloud nothing's record and just like kind of going. Can you slow down? I'm going. still writing this down. Keep going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, no, and I, I just want to say if uh, anyone is listening later about the um, Skype call, Mike is on a computer with no headphone jack. And so we're relying on the Skype call. So the long pauses are intentional. And uh, the Garbon Bosia was intentional, and um, <laughs> we will try to fix it in post production. Um, Mike, this kind of leads part, me. It's part of the mise en scene, right, Mike? The, Say that again. It's part of the mise en scene of this episode. Being oh yeah, yeah. About film film it, yeah, yeah. We'll fix it in post. Is the the lazy filmmaker's mantra? Mise on a beam. <laughs> Do we know that one? Mise on a beam. Right, we'll oh yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember learning that. I can't remember what it means though. Yeah, mise en place, mise van der Rohe, right? We got all all the mies. Mies. <laughs> um, but your question earlier, I mean, what you were you were going off about going, you know, learning about one writer or artist, and then that leads you to another. Um, you know, who are some artists that Wallace has led you to, or sort of what's you know? I'm really interested just in your personal like pantheon. What what are you reading? What are you into? What's what what do you kind of worship? <laughs> yeah um what is your temple mike yep yeah i mean uh i choose i i, I don't know if i've chosen wisely but um <laughs> i mean like i i just i mean just like our art, art right uh you know in my and my family but the um the i mean wallace is certainly i think where well i don't think it's necessarily i mean it's because I Pinchon and Delillo, I, I kind of like hit all of them at the same time. Like, or they yeah. you know, sort of like balancing to all of them at the same time. I mean, it, it's certainly, um, it's certainly probably how I got to George Saunders. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, no, that's, that's not even true. Um, no, I got to George Saunders in a really weird way. Um, but uh, that's a tough question, I guess, because like, because I I am completely guilty of the entire body doing what Wallace does kind of thing, right? Like, um, you know, where I really sort of bought into that and where I would go and read people who got sort of lumped in with Wallace, like William Bowman, for example, and be like, nah, they're not the same, right? Like, you know, how dare you, sir? You know, I've never read Volman at all. What? What? Um, yeah, oh my I really haven't. Oh my God! Yeah. We need so, to do a so whole Mike's fucking Volman season. Mike's telling me now. like, oh, don't bother. Oh and, my and God! Matt seems quite quite upset. Oh I'm not. I'm not saying don't bother. Like I, I'm. Okay. I'm just saying that like the, the comparison is, uh, is is really misleading. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, I would I'd have to come back to you come back to you on that question because I don't entirely know like who like necessarily steered me directly from 
from there or or not. Um, Did you ever read Catholics by Brian Moore, Mike? I have not. No, that's like Wallace in an interview talked about that being one of his one of his top books. Yep, oh, I, thought, okay. I, I checked it out. I really liked it. It was cool. Yeah, I oh, mean, cool. I mean, there's some niche stuff like that that Wallace recommends that a lot of people read. Um, and there's also stuff that, like you say, gets lumped in with him. And I think, you know, what I'm interested in is more just like your development as a reader. And you know, anyone who yeah. comes to Wallace has some kind of taste they're developing as a reader, right? And, and yeah, and that could be like, well, I want to go back and read big books, and you could go back and read Don Quixote and Moby Dick, and that I, that makes sense right. coming coming from Infinite Jest. It could make sense mm-hmm. that you go read, um, you know, journalistic nonfiction like John Jeremiah Sullivan. Mm-hmm. It could could make sense that you go read Daniel Efsky, whatever. Um, and, right. And all, all right. of all of those paths are super interesting to me because all of those people often circle back to Wallace in the course of that. Um, so that, that's the only, like, sort of the heart of that question is really just about like, what, what do you circle back to? Um, well, I guess I circle back to, and maybe the thing that Wallace in part opens the door to, but then a lot of other, and, you know, and admittedly lesser writers also do this for me, um, is I like the I like the stuff that sort of incorporates and writes about pop culture or recent American history. Um, like those are the things that really. Um, and, and here's where it actually all goes back to. And this is this is super weird. And I'm gonna, but I'm I I I, I don't apologize. Is um, Oliver Stone? Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver Stone is the first artist, like apart from maybe Spielberg or George Lucas, that I knew by name. And knew and went to see something because it was the new Oliver Stone movie. Mm. Um, and the and you know, I was born in 1979, and like my parents sort of would take me to see whatever I wanted. So like you know uh, something like um, you know going to see you know uh, Wall Street or Born on the Fourth of July or like JFK in the movie theater was was a big deal to me. Um, and what I would do then is I'd like, you know, I'd talk to my parents about it, right? Like y'all were alive when all of that happened. Like, was it like this? <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, and I'm like, Oh, but it feels, it feels real. Um, and, but then like what that, what that kind of got me into, I guess is in part the paranoid style that, you know, uh, Wallace and Pinchon and DeLillo and Paul Thomas Anderson to a large degree, um, all kind of, uh, get into, but, the uh, the bigger thing, I guess, is like people were taking the material of their immediate experience and of the nation's um, experience and trying to make sense of it, right, and sort of form some grand narrative. Mm-hmm. Even if the grand narrative is to show that like everything's falling apart and there is no grand narrative, right? Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff like really, really got to me, and so like I trace everything back to Oliver Stone. Um, really, um, really, I guess to seeing, uh, where, I mean, I was already into him and then I saw the doors, uh, which I, I hardly rank as his best work, but, um, seeing the doors and realizing, oh wait, my parents' music is kind of cool. Right. There's like, wait, like y'all have been holding out on me. Like there's, there's some cool stuff going on here. Um, what's this about? And then that just telling me like, there's more to look for. Right. And I have to dig stuff up and, and then at the same time, he does a movie like Natural Born Killers, which is so much about at the time, right? What now it feels like and looks like. 
Uh, and so that just kind of got me. I, I mean, I love reading older stuff, but I guess like the things that really get me pumped are the the works that are trying to talk about what it's like to be alive right now and how maybe like what in our immediate past is responsible for getting us there. Um, right. And, you know, and and how crazy can the theory be? Right. Like whether that <laughs> you know, whether that's a, a I mean, because, of course, that's the JFK connection. Right. Like the conspiracy, the conspiratorial paranoid kind of mindset, you know, whether that's like a book. I mean, a book I love and try to recommend to anyone who will listen to like, Lazar's book, Sway. Have you all read this one? Um, no. I probably recommended it to you. But um, and um, and it basically it takes um, the Rolling Stones, Kenneth Anger and the Manson family and connects all three of them through this one figure, uh, Bobby Beausoleil, who in fact knew and was involved with all of them. Uh, and so like, it makes this grand kind of look at the end of the 1960s um, through like it, the avant-garde film world, the world of the LA cult, and then like kind of the swinging London um, fascination with the occult and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, books like that or, or, or James Elroy's books, you know, like I just eat those things up like candy because they're they're just riffing on sort of I mean, or like the opening to Underworld. Right. Things like that yes. where yeah. somebody riffing on real people butting up against a fictional story, but making mm-hmm. a real even about the real world. Um, yeah, and yeah. Even if it's like Michael on stuff like the um, coming through slaughter oh or God. the you know like i mean that sort of stuff to me is just the most exciting stuff around um right. fucking one one hour into the an hour into the podcast and now we get to the good shit this is what kills oh, me every I'm, time this is i'm sorry no I mean, this you is know, good man all right now we let's start over all right let's wipe the slate clean okay let's go. all right so let's do this <laughs> So JFK. I'm Mike Miley, and all right, let's go. Uh, so JFK, we should have just started right there. Oliver Stone, um, to me, yeah. to me, that movie was hugely influential in my childhood, and right? uh, I became deeply uh, interested. You know, because I grew up in Texas, and I became yeah. deeply interested in in this sort of cross between truth, fiction, maybe truth, maybe fiction. And um, I don't know if y'all know, I'm totally going to like sink all of my credibility here in the next 30 seconds. But um, it's going to be that scene from Slacker with the, you know, it was conspiracy a go go. Right. um, You know, that was the working title of my biography (laughs) of conspiracy (laughs) a go go. Um, Now I'm I'm calling it something else. But um, I I actually do have like an extant blog on Blogger about the. Kennedy assassination and really more of like historical stuff about Dallas in the sixties. And I could, we could go deep state on this. I could talk about this for a long time. Um, You have been (laughs) out on me for years. um, So I, I, and in fact, I have reached out to some people who are still surviving and I'm a member of like JFK Lancer, which is like the, oh the true like JFK conspiracy. Uh, they have an annual conference every November 22nd in Dallas. Oh um, my gosh. Um, um, but, but I have okay. a whole, I have a whole, my personal angle on this is through Dallas in the 1960s and especially the nightclubs. That's my interest in it. Um, but, yeah. but, but really yeah. my interest in the Oliver Stone too, was like what you were saying a minute ago about bringing up natural born killers is like, 
uh, he's kind of like a flawed filmmaker. I think in some ways, and I would, I would argue this, that he is, um, you know, imperfect in really interesting ways. And to, mm-hmm. to me, I think you could make the same argument about um, David Foster Wallace as a writer and maybe even as like a public figure is that, you know, that if you're a saint, that's sort of uninteresting, right? But if you're a flawed saint, that mm. people are going to remember that. And that's interesting. And there's something to talk about. Um, so yeah. I, I want to get, you know, your, your kind of, what, what is your assessment of Oliver Stone? Is it just like, well, he can do no wrong or is it like he's done wrong in interesting ways? Oh, I mean, <laughs> Stone ruined my Thanksgiving when I went to see Alexander in the theater on Thanksgiving Day. Jeez. But um, but Oliver Stone from 1985 to 1995 made 10 films that if, you know, if he were a French painter, he'd be, you know, he'd be, you know, Renoir, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, they're, they're incredibly um, accomplished, daring, and innovative works that... You know, the, the particularly the the JFK through Nixon run that do more for the development of, of film form. You know, for whatever you know manipulative or nefarious ends you you know the, his detractors want to want to put it to. Um, <laughs> I, I think that um, he pushed the medium forward, um, and you know, and so to your question, uh, you know, like I'm. I'm on his team, 85 to 95, and after that, it doesn't matter, you know. But um, but to to push the Wallace comparison, I guess, is that the very things that make them flawed are also the things that make them interesting, right? And I mean, and this is what Wallace says in, in in the David Lynch essay as well, right? It's impossible to separate the failures from the successes because the things that make the successes successful are also what's going on in the failures, right? Like they, um, like, so sometimes it hits and sometimes it misses, um, but they stay true to what they're doing. Um, and I think that, and it's true for like Robert Altman as well, you know, or, or, or plenty of, plenty of artists, right. Who, um, who can have a, an erratic output, uh, in terms of quality. But when you really look at their stuff closely, they're, they're doing the same thing all the time. They're not really changing their approach. I mean, I think like Wallace probably goes through greater changes than than those other examples that uh that uh, in terms of like the development of his of his form and his craft. But um, you know, because Stone starts out way more conventional and then like gets pretty um pretty out there, but it's but it's very rapidly. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that they are um there there is something comparable about them in that their their flaws not only are what make them interesting, but their flaws are also part of, uh, are also wrapped up in their successes and their triumphs. Yeah, totally. And I, and I would add Paul Thomas Anderson to, into that group. And, oh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe it's someone, you know, just flailing around and sort of um, trying to develop their personal aesthetic and their personal mm-hmm. style. And I mean, that's, that's definitely something we see with Wallace where he's publishing his first novel at a very young age um, and you know David Lynch too, becoming a, a filmmaker at a pretty young age, where he's he's committed. Paul Thomas Anderson is making feature film like what twenty four, twenty five years old. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, w- there's no other way to do it than to fail differently. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that to me is is super interesting to watch in all of these sort of artist careers. 
And um, I do look forward to to telling you a little bit more about my personal experience with the movie JFK because that that movie in particular, The Doors, I love. Born on the Fourth of July, Nixon, all, Oliver Stone stuff in general, I, I love to talk about. But JFK, for whatever reason, I come back to more than the rest. So, oh, totally. FYI, let's talk about that later. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> no, no, no reminder needed. That's 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 happening. But um, well, and too, we look at like the careers of like Anderson and Wallace too, in a way. Um, the the ways in which they kind of move away from their maximalist tendencies. Uh, toward things that are more elliptical and enigmatic, um, like I'm particularly if you if you put something like sure Magnolia and Infinite Jest, you could put those side by side as kind of being similar like gargantuan works, right? But then you can put, like the Master and Oblivion side yeah. by side as also being like attempts at sort of um, being about what's not said as much as what is trying mm-hmm. to. Some sort of sense about uh, about American history without ever tackling it directly, um, you know, making something that's about consciousness and um, the and the malleability, I guess, of perception. Um, I mean, and I'm I'm totally just making this up right now, but I think there's something interesting there with with like the, the I guess the so the mature works of of some of these artists too, the the things that they wind up gravitating toward after they kind of. Get steer away from the maybe more show offy maximalist um, stuff, yeah. The mm. of the maximalist, like you know, major capital M, major capital W work. Well, and <laughs> and with with Paul Thomas Anderson and Wallace too, I think you can make an argument that they somehow get a little more interested in religion as they get you know a little mm. more mature. But I also yeah. I would also go going back to JFK. I think it's interesting that you're in New Orleans, dude, because I think JFK might be one of the great New Orleans films or depictions of films. And oh man, okay, so no, like people will fight me about this and roll their eyes at me, but like, people <laughs> don't love to talk about how nobody gets it right and how Hollywood never does us right um, and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. You know, I think John Sayles' Passion Fish really mm. captures sort of uh, the I mean, they shot it in Jennings, Louisiana, but they kind of capture the more... Um, That's a good one. Rural, I guess, uh, texture of Louisiana. Um, and I, I really love that movie a lot. Um, but if you, but I do agree with you. Um, I feel like JFK captures... Like, people talk about how the accents are terrible. I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. Like, but who cares? Um, the thing for me about JFK is it manages to capture how, in New Orleans, the affluent the mm. underworld and all of that kind of stuff are intermingled, right? Like it, it captures all of the different strata of society and how really they are all just cross pollinating all the time. Uh, and I think that is one of the most fascinating things about new Orleans is, is how, um, how what we might think of as different social strata actually, um, stuff like that. Um, and I think JFK gets that really well. Hmm. Have you seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, Mike? I have seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you think that movie is doing similar things with its depiction of the American South, Louisiana, social stratosphere stuff? I mean, it's it's doing something. I mean, it's doing. I mean, it's definitely doing something different from JFK. But um, well, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of see that one like in the same vein as uh, the work, like the early work of David Gordon Green, uh, or something like that. But um, you know, I, I've seen Beasts of the Southern Wild once, so I can't speak about it at length. Um, 
and you know and i saw it where like you know we were still um you know we were not in new orleans for katrina you know but certainly like so but like watching beasts of the southern wild was kind of like watching katrina footage again for for a large part of it um sure. so i mean like i i did enjoy it uh and there's a lot i liked about it but um but yeah i don't have a very nuanced take about it because i <laughs> it the one time yeah yeah cool well, I, you and I, like I say, we've got a lot more to talk about coming up at the <laughs> American Literary, Literature Association next month. Yeah. And, and then mm-hmm. the David Foster Wallace Conference in Illinois. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, Dave Laird will be in New Zealand this whole time. Yeah. So we'll, he made his uh, choice. We'll have to Skype you in. He made his choice. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. You, you knew what you were getting into. Uh, no, no. We're just giving you our time, uh-huh. Dave. We will try to include you as much as possible in this, but um, cool, fun. I, I am really looking forward to it. You know, we've covered some ground. You mentioned Silver Blatt briefly earlier. I don't know if you want to come back to us and give us that story right quick before we um, have any other final thoughts. But uh, I would be down for yeah. it. Yeah, was that a direct result of having done Infinite Jest with your students, Mike? Did that kind of like catch his ear in some way, and then he wanted to hang out, or how did that go down? Oh no, it wasn't that wholesome. No, it was me hounding him <laughs> until, oh, until cool. he called me back. No, I mean it. Um, it was the thing where it was the second time around that I had done the class, and um, I would, you know, I, I really like trying to do unique experiences for for students in, in classes and stuff like that. And we listened to the um, Infinite Jest interview um, in class one day, and. You know, a student was like, oh, man, we should get him to come talk to our class. You know, that'll never happen. And I was like, oh, yeah, well. And and then I um, I made it. I, like, kind of hounded him until he made it happen. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was after school had let out. But um, we, like, we had lunch with him, uh, which was really great. And then we got to go to his um, his his library, which is basically a one-bedroom apartment with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves and uh in every uh, possible space. So it's um, like they're lining all of the walls, but then the middle of the room is all like stack. It's like the stacks, right? But it's somebody, it's a, it's the living room of a, you know, 700 square foot apartment. Does he live in there or this is ancillary to his apartment? I do not know. Um, Was there a bed? uh, (laughs) uh, No. I mean, like, I don't, we didn't see, I mean, like we didn't see, like we didn't get like the whole tour, but, uh, (laughs) but like, you would go into the kitchen and you'd open up the cupboards and there were books in the cupboards and <laughs> you know, you open the pantry and there were books in the pantry, but they, someone had also put shelving on the inside of the door of the pantry. <laughs> so I'm opening it thinking, like, oh, dang, that's a good idea. That's, Oh man, I'm going to steal that. I haven't done it yet. Right. But, um, but I certainly, um, I certainly was, you know, and, and like, you know, it was cool because my students just sort of hung out. There. He let them hang out there for like an hour um, and they were just like picking books off the shelves and flipping through them. And, you know, it was like super rare stuff that he had gotten from like, I mean, everyone he'd ever interviewed on Bookworm, he had their, their books on the shelf, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, wow. it was it was super cool. That was a real, I mean, like, it was one of those things where sometimes you're like, I'm doing this for me. And like my students, <laughs> yeah. 
like they get to come along too and i'm glad they think it's cool too but really i'm like man what would i like to do if i were in this class and it's like but you are in this class so why don't you do it and you know they'll think it's i mean if you think what you're doing is cool it's a lot easier to sell your students on what on the that what you're doing is cool um or that's or at least that's what i what I try to do. Um, but a lot of it is just like, you know, I've got to keep myself interested because the last thing that I want to do is, is go into the room being like bored to talk about something again for like the third time that day, you know, or something like that. That's just, that's death, you know, (laughs) that is, I never had that luxury at the school I taught. I was so small that every class that I taught was a different section of an, of a new class. So I was teaching like six or seven different classes. Yeah. Uh, never yeah. like the third English 11 of the day, you know, it's like one English 11 class, one socials 11 class, one history 12 class. Yeah. And I mean, that has its merits. I mean, like having like, multiple, <laughs> yeah. like five more work. certainly not, not exciting, but, um, mm-hmm. but it is nice to be able to switch gears too. Right. Yeah, and like you sure. can have, um, if you can have one thing in the middle of that break that uh, like in that run of three of the same thing, if you can do something else in the middle, it makes coming back to the other thing a little, a little fresher, you know, most of the time. Yeah, I bet. Well, Mike, um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Do you want to, um, yeah, man. do you want to, um, tell us where to find you if people want to read more of your work? Yeah, uh, I mean, I am really slow on, uh, you know, two years ago, on my last appearance on the Great Concavity, Dave recommended that I maybe create uh, this thing called a, like a website or something what? like that. Um, oh, did I? Yeah, <laughs> I'm still How do I remember into, that? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, I mean, like, I, I, I don't have one that is show ready or anything like that. So for now, it's like beyond the, the Google search where I will get confused with a, a dead baseball player and some drummer in LA um, who all have the same name. Cool. I mean, I, I guess. Uh, but then the um twitter i guess is i'm i'm on twitter at mike c miley and then you know hopefully um eventually uh have a have a website uh that is available for people to get to but um cool but most of it is um i think pretty much everything is not behind a paywall except for the the critique piece um but but yeah so t- so twitter is usually the best place and then if if somebody wants to uh, find out how to get something else they can ask me from there and I'll, I'll happily steer them in the right direction. Well, I'm Good really stuff. excited about cool. this because I got at least one great book recommendation from you and that's the Zachary Lazar book, Sway. Uh, uh, oh man, Sway is so, so, so good. Do you want to, um, do you want to recommend a film that I maybe have not seen? Because I, I, the, I think the last movie I saw in the theaters was Moana. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, uh, she, well, the film I will recommend to everybody that like not maybe a ton of people have seen um, is uh, David Holtzman's Diary uh, by Jim McBride. That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, I've definitely not is, seen that. Can you say that one more time so I can write it down? <laughs> yeah. I've it's not called, heard of that either. It's called David Holtzman's Diary. Uh, it's from 1967. Uh, by Jim McBride, who um, went on to direct uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic *Great Balls of Fire* and uh, the New Orleans film crime film *The Big Easy*, but 
David Holzman's diary is about a guy who is enamored with the French New Wave and thinks, and he just got his new, he just lost his job and got his draft notification that he is uh, 1A, uh, you know, like ready for the infantry kind of draft. And so he decides that he's going to film his life and, um, and, you know, then if he can look at his life on the editing table, he'll be able to make sense out of it. Uh, and so that, that the film is that footage. And, of course, what you quickly realize is that David Holtzman is a uh, neurotic and um, sort of possessive peeping Tom who, um, you know, who's trying to impose an order on his life that doesn't exist. Um, and so it's like the, the film that he creates turns on him. Uh, <laughs> and wow. it's got. Um, I mean, so it has a lot of overlap, maybe, with some of the stuff that uh, himself is up to in his uh, <laughs> right. in his filmography. But um, but I mean, it, it's just a wonderful you know movie from the New York underground in the in the late '60s that uh, I think grows more and more uh, prescient with each passing year. Um, you know, this is somebody filming himself with a 16 millimeter camera, you know, and uh, it, it anticipates the the world of uh, you know, selfies or and you know, vloggers and all the rest of stuff. And I, I think it's just an interesting, it's interesting to look at something that's you know, fifty years old at this point, fifty one years old, that um, is so spot on about media culture uh, hmm. when there were still only three networks, right? You know, I think it's uh, I, I just it's a gem of a movie. It's it's in the, it's been inducted into the Library of Congress. Um, so it'll it'll be pres- preserved for as long as there's an America. Um, <laughs> so um, how much longer is that going to be? Um, hey, it, it's it's, it's going to be there, okay? Um, and celluloid <laughs> properly preserved doesn't go anywhere. But um, but I mean, that's the movie I would recommend to anybody who like cool. wants to check out a movie that they may not be familiar with. And I, I just I love it to death. Oh, it sounds amazing. Cool. I mean, anything about like oh, to document your own life like that. That sounds fascinating. So, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a sucker for those for sort of those meta things in that that movies do. Um, and it's it's very cleverly staged where you can see every time he's filming himself, there is a mirror in the shot where you can see the camera on a tripod, you know, without anybody behind it, and he wears the microphone around his neck. So even though there is a very small crew making the movie, they go to great lengths to make it look like it is a self-produced home movie. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really sharp. Uh, it's, it's a really sharp movie. That's cool. I think every time I've ever hung out with you and Dave Herring at the same time, Mike, uh, the conversation invariably always goes to film. And within yeah. the first, after the first like minute, I'm totally lost. I have no idea about anything <laughs> you guys are talking about beyond like Lynch and Jarmusch and, and Anderson. I'm just like nowhere near as deep into this stuff as you guys are. So Despite not understanding a lot of it, I really appreciate the the depth of uh, of interest and expertise that you have on the subject. So thanks for walking us through some of that today. Oh yeah, absolutely, my my pleasure. I mean, like it's 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 fun to talk about, and you know, don't be daunted by the stuff. You know, like <laughs> I've got this huge list of stuff that I still need to check out and names that keep getting yeah. introduced to me all the time. Like it's, it's, totally. it's part of the journey. It's part of the fun, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, that's why we get up in the morning. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, it's a lot of fun for me too. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks y'all. Cool, man. Would you all, would you recommend the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie Phantom Thread? What was oh, your, God, yeah. what was oh, your quick thoughts on that? Oh my, oh my God. Yeah. I, I mean, I've only seen it the <laughs> one time and I'm, I'm really bummed about that, but 
Um, but I mean, yeah, Phantom Thread was my favorite thing that came out last year that I saw. Okay, um, cool, cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing. If, if you haven't seen it yet, yeah, Phantom I have seen Thread, it. I like um, it a lot too. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated with like a, a new direction it might signal in Anderson's career, and mm-hmm. um, even while it's also still you know doing much of the same stuff that he he's known for. But uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's so much fun watching somebody who everyone had pegged as being like the next Scorsese or the next Altman kind of look at all of them and say, you have no idea where I'm going now. And then mm-hmm. like each movie is kind of him telling us where he's, where he might be headed. Um, you know, even though he'll, he's going to go somewhere else next. Um, it's, yeah. it's so fun. <laughs> I hope he doesn't stay in like the British period piece necessarily, but it's a nice, it's a nice uh, detour. I think. Well, yeah, don't worry. The next all the American stuff. He's, yeah. He's directing Adam Sandler's next uh, Netflix comedy special. Um, is he really? So- yeah, doing a stand-up special. I just saw that headline. Uh, oh, the, wow. So, yeah, so he's, you know, he's all over the place. You know, he's just getting he's just getting started. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Matt, where can the people find The Great Concavity online? I know we're at Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram. I think we're concavityshow at gmail.com if you want to email us. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I might still have some stickers or bookmarks if people want to email us and request one of those. It's been a while since we've had a request. Um, we need to get. <laughs> I, I love how committed you are to the stickers, though. I love uh, it's my favorite thing. Show it's like uh, I got stickers, y'all. Um. Thanks, Mike. Uh, if if people have requests for more swag, like we're open to suggestion. If we should do, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to do next. Maybe a patch. A button. I'm thinking of coffee oh, mugs cool. or t-shirts. Uh, pen. Yeah. Oven, oven mitts. Every day, man. They see the sticker every day on the back of my computer. So, um, <laughs> boom, so, boom. Yeah, he's getting represented. Mattery. Love it. All right. Love well, it. as usual, thanks to Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts for their art. Mike, thanks again for coming on the show, man. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you. All right. You guys enjoy uh, your, your conference in May. Enjoy your conference in June. Uh, hopefully, I'll catch you sometime next year. <laughs> in real life we'll think of you all right all right (laughs) remember me (laughs) avenge me son (laughs) metairie park country county Country Day School in Louisiana. Are you not an American, Dave? I'm not an American.